Uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, just a few brief words about me. My name is Jeremy Olam. Uh, like Tim was saying, my wife and I have been here for 14 years. We actually celebrated our 14th uh, wedding anniversary on Tuesday. Take that, James and Christine. We got you. Uh, yeah, 14 years. We, we got married, moved to Arizona, and within three weeks we're here at the church and we have never left. We've been here ever since, and it's, it's a great blessing. When Tim asked me if I would like the opportunity to do this, uh, I told him if he had asked me that question that first Sunday we were here, we probably would have turned around and went somewhere else because this, this is a terrifying idea. But uh, God had different plans, and so here I stand. Um, so bear with me, all right? Uh, 14 years married to my wife. We have two boys. Uh, Asher is six and a half years old. He is very particular that I make sure to remember that half. Uh, Beck, on the other hand, is two. He doesn't seem to care what I say about his age, but he still goes to the bathroom in his pants, so what does he know, right? <laughs> um, uh, I grew up on the eastern plains of North Dakota. I was less than an hour's drive from Canada. Uh, so if I had to give you one word to describe uh, my childhood, it would be frozen. No, wait, frigid. Not, well, frozen works. We'll stick with that. Um, I know it might be hard to believe looking at me now, but uh, when I grew up, I was a nerdy, chubby kid who was really into video games, comic books, and computers. Um, by contrast, now I am a nerdy, chubby man who likes those same things. But um, that, made, <laughs> that made it difficult for me because uh, my family, who I grew up with, was really into sports. My cousins, who I, who I literally grew up with as my best friends, my uh, brother and my sister were all amazing athletes, uh, and that meant that I was kind of the odd man out in that scenario. They wanted to play sports all the time. I wanted to play Mario. Um, but there was one man that managed to break through even to me. Uh, in the 90s, there was no athlete greater than Michael Jordan. Um, and I remember watching him in awe. In the 90s, we spent a lot of time as a family rooting for the Bulls, watching him lead the team to uh, three championships in a row, watching him retire, watching him come out of retirement, watching him win another three championships in a row, the dream team, Olympic gold medals. Like, Michael Jordan was the man. And even me could appreciate that. Uh, but when I think back to Michael Jordan, it's actually not uh, one of those championship runs or the Olympics that I remember Vividly, what I remember uh, is something that happened before that, and so I'm going to ask you to go on a little journey with me, okay? The year is 1989, and I am an 11-year-old boy. Uh, that season, Michael Jordan was still leading the Bulls, but he was not the Michael Jordan that we think of now. Uh, in fact, the Bulls barely squeaked into the playoffs in that season. Uh, they were not expected to make the playoffs. They did, and it was expected that the team that they were playing, the Cleveland Cavaliers, were going to wipe the floor with them and send them packing. Well, in the first round, best of five game series, the Bulls surprisingly pushed it to the fifth and final game, to everyone's surprise. Um, the fifth game, the crucial game that was going to decide who goes to the second round was to the wire, back and forth, back and forth, all the way down. Uh, until you reach the last 10 seconds of the game when Jordan sinks a shot to put them up by one point, 10 seconds remaining, it seems like possibly the game is over. Uh, but it's not because the Cleveland Cavaliers managed to get the ball, get down court, score, take the lead, leaving only three seconds left on the clock. That was like the nail in the coffin, right? This game is over. The Bulls are going home. Dreams shattered on the rocks of reality. But no, 
They had Michael Jordan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know how this worked. The Cavaliers were not dumb. They figured out the key to this is to double-team Jordan. It's really the key all the time when he's playing, right? Uh, they have two guys covering him. They do an inbound pass. Somehow Jordan manages to free himself from the defenders. The inbound pass comes over their heads. He grabs it. Two seconds remaining. He drives to the top of the key across the court. One second remaining. And he launches himself in the air, as only Jordan seems to be able to do, where he does this kind of like sideways, drifting backwards, floating magically in the air, holding a perfect pose, right? And then the ball slides off the tips of his fingers towards the goal, and the clock ticks to zero, and the buzzer sounds, and it's like time stops, right? The ball's in the air, swish through the hoop. The Bulls win, place goes crazy, pandemonium ensues, and I have this very vivid memory, um, mainly because I watched it on YouTube this week, but we'll pretend that I've remembered this <laughs> since my childhood, but I have this very vivid memory of Jordan hitting the ground and immediately turning around, and my wife said, please, whatever you do, do not jump on that stage. So I'm not going to actually do it, but he, he jumped very high uh, and turned around, and he did this fist pump move. I said, can I do the fist pump? She's like, yeah, that'd be okay. So the fist pump. And in my mind, when I think Michael Jordan, that's the moment that I see him as a champion, even though it wasn't a championship, celebrating, right? Maybe you remember that moment. Uh, it's a pretty great moment. There was a word for what a guy like Jordan was. He was clutch, right? He's the kind of guy that when you're in a jam, you want him in charge, I guarantee when their coach uh, calls timeout before that last inbound pass, there's not a lot of discussion. It goes something like this. Get the ball to Jordan, all right? Let's go. <laughs> That's what happens. There is a seriously good chance when that man gets the ball in his hand in a moment that he needs to execute, he is going to do it. He was clutch. And as a kid, I desperately wanted to be clutch, right? Uh, when I was 13 years old, my dad decided that he was going to coach uh, a baseball team in my hometown. Uh, we lived in a really small town, and I was the oldest son, uh, and so dad decided that he would coach a team in order to spend some time with me. Um, and being the coach and my father, he gave me a key position on the team, which, if I'm going to be honest with you, I really should have been, like, trying to avoid splinters in a sensitive area on the bench, maybe organizing bats. All right, maybe on that, like, every other game rotation in right field. But instead, Dad, because he loved me, put me at first base. I was actually pretty good at first base. It was at that moment that I discovered that I'm really good at activities that required me to be stationary, right? <laughs> Watching TV, eating, taking naps. I'm amazing at those kind of things. And first base fit, boom, right in my wheelhouse. So first base, no big deal, right? Step one, look ready. Step two, pray desperately that the ball never comes in your direction. God and I got very close that season. <laughs> Step three, when the ball goes into play, you just take two or three steps back to the bag and extend your arm. This kind of physical activity I can handle, right? And then you catch it. No big deal. Well, I did pretty good at first base until one day the worst happened. Well, it depends on how you're looking at it. Maybe this was my opportunity to be clutch. There I am, ready position. And the worst thing that can happen to a terrible baseball player who's playing on the right side of the field, 
a lefty comes up. <laughs> My prayers got very intense at that moment. God, please, not right now, not right now, not right now. Boom, he pulls the ball, and it roars in my direction, just two steps to the side, and I move, somewhat like an arthritic house cat, in the direction of the ball, and I launch my less-than-aerodynamic body skyward towards the ball, prone. Clouds split, sun ray upon me. Now, that didn't really happen, but in that moment, there I am in midair, and it feels like everything slows down, and then I crash to a heap in the dirt because that's really all I was physically capable of. Um, and miracle of miracles, the ball is in my hand, right? Yeah, I know. So I quickly flip over, and I see my pitcher, who was way more clutch than me, running to first base to cover the bag. All I have to do is toss the ball to him, out, we're out of the inning. My moment of being clutch is secure. I, on the other hand, decided that it would be wise to launch the ball into near-Earth orbit. Um, <laughs> the ball left my fingertips, and it sailed not only over his head and over his outstretched arm, but, hey, why not, over the infield fence, too. <laughs> Landed in some lady's garden next door. And somewhere between the, like, look of dawning horror on his face and the audible gasps of terror from my team, I realized this is it. My future as a tubby little couch potato has been sealed, and here I stand. I gave up the dream of being clutch. Be like Mike? Yeah, right. Not going to happen, right? I just came to the realization I was not going to be that guy. And I've spent my whole life being okay with the fact that, hey, I'm not going to be that guy. But the dream has been reborn, my friends. No, don't get me wrong. I have not decided that suddenly at the age of 36, I'm going to become an overweight athlete. That is not what has happened. But I have found a new dream in my heart to be clutch. Here's the difference. These days, I dream of being spiritually clutch. Right? That when things get tough, my family can look to me with confidence, like that team looked to Jordan and know he's going to know what to do. He trusts God, and he will make the right choice on our behalf. I want desperately to be spiritually clutch. Now, the thing is that being the, a man who's spiritually clutch manifests itself differently than a guy who's clutch in sports. And today, we're going to look at a, my guy, uh, and I think that he exemplifies what it looks like to be spiritually clutch maybe better than anyone in all of Scripture. Uh, I was doing research for this today, and I came across this quote that I think backs that up. Um, Here's what it says. He has seldom been given the full credit he deserves as perhaps the greatest man of faith ever to set foot on the stage of human history. In fact, his entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of simply setting down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. I want to be that kind of guy. I, I, would, I would be okay if someone said that about me. This man is Joshua. Today we're going to look at the scriptures and see what it says about the story of Joshua. We're just going to hit a couple highlights from his life. Uh, but before we get there, would you pray with me that God would use Joshua's story to change us today? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Bible and stories like Joshua's that tell us of a man who is faithful. God, we, we are thankful that we have a God that is trustworthy and that we can look to men like this to model our lives after God, uh, I pray that you bless our time together and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the scripture tells us a little bit about Joshua. He first uh, shows up 
on the scene uh, when it mentions that he was born in slavery in Egypt. And then he comes into focus for us in the life of actually his predecessor, Moses. Now, this is Moses who was born uh, a son of the Pharaoh, led his people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Moses, you can feel free to read his story in Exodus in your Bible, or Charlton Heston has a great adaptation of his life that you can check out. Um, Joshua appears in Moses' story after they've left Egypt, and they proceed to go to the borders of the promised land. And he's sent as a spy into the promised land. Uh, he is specially noted because he is only one of two spies who come back and give a good report to Moses that they should move confidently into the land. Everyone else says no. Uh, majority wins. And as a result of that decision, Israel is punished and is forced to wander in the desert for 40 years. During that time, Joshua becomes more prominent. In fact, uh, he becomes a significant character in Moses' story because he becomes Moses' assistant, his right-hand man. Uh, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to speak with God and get the Ten Commandments on the tablets, Joshua is the man who's allowed to come with him, at least so far, up the hill. Joshua was a commander in the Israelite army. When they were wandering around the desert, he led uh, battles against the Amalekites while he was there. Uh, but he really comes directly into focus for us in the wake of an event that I think put the burgeoning history of Israel to the test. It was the death of Moses. Remember, this is Moses who had led Israel to freedom, Moses who had organized them into a people, Moses who had sustained them as their leader for 40 years, Moses who had established the law and the government and their structure, Moses who had seen and spoken to God, and now Moses is dead. This is a very key moment in the early years of Israel as a people. What is going to happen? I don't think we can overestimate the impact of Moses' death had on the people of Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us that they had a month-long funeral for him. And in the vacuum that was created by his death, Joshua comes onto the stage. Uh, we're going to read about Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is right at the beginning of your Bible. I believe it's the sixth book. Uh, if you have your, scripture, your Bible with you, you can follow along, or the words will be up here on the screen. I'm going to read us the first, uh, I think it's 11 verses. This is what Moses says to Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon has been given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you whenever you go. This is the moment when God, at least to Joshua, cements him as the planned leader for the people going forward. And he gives Joshua the first step in the plan to move forward. And it's pretty simple and it's pretty clear, right? Cross the river, take the land that I promised. Now, if I'm a new leader trying to establish my authority, uh, this sounds like a good move, right? You get to go to the people and you say, hey, you know that thing that God promised us that hasn't happened yet? I'm going to lead us to do it. You know how Moses never got it done? Don't worry, Joshua's here, right? This is a confidence-building moment, it seems, at least on the face of it. Now, the problem with that is the river. Uh, We're not going to go there, but in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, this is what the scripture says about the river. It says, the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Why Why is that important? Why would it tell us that? Well, because... What moments ago seemed like a decisive and bold move to cross the river suddenly now seems reckless. And you have to understand the river to understand why it seems reckless. Um, The river runs within a riverbed. And it runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea uh, in the south. And it runs in the Jordan River Valley. Now the floodplain for that river is anywhere from 200 yards to a mile wide, right? And so the scripture tells us that every season the river overflows and floods, and it floods to cover an area 200 yards to a mile wide. And we are in the flood season right now in the story. Now, because there is water constantly and because it floods regularly, the floodplain is choked with plants, vegetation, weeds, Every kind of thing you can imagine. In fact, one of the commentaries uh, called it jungle-like, okay? So you have a mile-wide plain that is choked with jungle-like overgrowth and is now covered with water, right? And somewhere out in the middle, which you can't see, is the riverbed, which suddenly drops off 3 to 12 feet deep somewhere in the middle. And Joshua is standing on the side saying, now's the time we're going to cross the river, Right, if I'm, he's leading me, I'm going like, hey, we've waited 40 years. Why not another three months till the river goes down? What do you say, Joshua? But no, Joshua says, we're going. The last issue is that the elevation drop from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea is considerable. And so not only is it flooded and deep, it is rushing past them. I think this is key because what it is establishing for Joshua and most importantly for the people is that God is still in command, right? God is saying very clearly that the God who rescued them out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea is the same God that will get them across the river that seems impossible to cross. God is establishing that he is still with them. And not only that, that he is anointing Joshua in a very public way as their leader. And he's going to do it in a pretty cool way. He's going to repeat himself. In fact, I think there's something really poetic that happens here. Forty years earlier, God has delivered them out of slavery by splitting the waters. And on this day, he's going to deliver them into the freedom of their new land by doing the same thing. God does cool things like that for his people. Now, so God gave him more than a plan of just tumbling across the water. Uh, The the priests came down with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, They walked down to the edge of the water, and it says as their toes hit the edge of the water, the waters began to stop running, and they walked across and stood in the middle, and the river 
stopped flowing, allowing the people of Israel to cross to the other side, to the shores of the place that God had promised them hundreds of years earlier. I don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm guessing there was quite the party going down. They have now stepped foot into the promised land that they have been waiting for forever. And Joshua knows the importance of this moment. Now here's the problem. They crossed over into the promised land, and what they find on the other side is enemies, armies, giants, and fortified cities. Out of the frying pan into the fire, I think is the way that they say this, right? And so Joshua understands the perilous situation that they are in. They are in enemy territory. And so he does what any good leader in a difficult situation like this would do. Uh, Circumcision. I'm sorry. I must have the wrong... No, that's what it says here. Yep, circumcision. Yeah. So they enter the uh, they enter enemy territory where they are suddenly very vulnerable to being attacked. And what is Joshua's grand idea? Elective surgery, everyone. Line up. Right? This is not something they teach you in leadership books, and yet here Joshua is doing it. Why? Because the Israelites have wandered for 40 years in the desert, And they have not been circumcising their sons. And so he takes this opportunity, when they are most vulnerable, to make a demonstration to his people that he trusts God and that they are a people set apart. So he lines everybody up and he gets to work. Now there's a requisite healing moment in which they they are incredibly vulnerable, right? The armies that are nearby could easily overtake them like that. And all the guys would be saying, ow, ow, I can't do anything about it. (laughs) But that doesn't happen. And when they heal, the men say to Joshua, Joshua, what's next? What should we do? Because whatever it is, it can't be as bad as that last idea you had. (laughs) So what should we do? And Joshua looks across the valley and he points at a city, Jericho. Now, if you've been around church any amount of time, you've heard about Joshua and Jericho, right? I have heard it. I've been a children's pastor. I've taught this story many times. Well, in doing research to talk with you about it today, it actually becomes a little more epic than I originally thought. Because you need to understand how Jericho was constructed. Jericho was on a hill. And in order to keep enemies from easily walking up the hill to the city, they dug into the hill and built a 12-foot stone retaining wall so that there was a sheer wall all the way around the city. That wall held back the dirt of the hill, and it also stood as a foundation for another wall. There was a mud brick wall that sat on top of it, six feet deep at the base, and 20 feet at least high. 32 feet of wall as soon as you walk up. Now, behind that wall, the hill continued upwards, and the city sat at the top of the hill on the crest. Well... Jericho and the people who had designed it decided that they needed another layer of fortification. So at the crest of the hill, they built a second wall, another mud brick wall that was six feet deep and 20 feet tall. I don't know how good you are at math, but what we're talking about here is 70 feet of vertical wall between the inner city of Jericho and the Israelite army sitting on the floor below. And Joshua says, we're going there. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure you have a great plan, Joshua. He says, yeah, yeah, gather around, everybody. Let me tell you a story about how we're going to do this. Here we go. Day one, we're going to march on down to the city. We're going to walk in a circle around it. Be quiet. Nobody say a word. Then we're going home. 
Okay, what's, uh, what's after that? Well, day two, we're going to go do the same thing. March on down to the city, walk in a circle around it, everybody be quiet, and then we're going home. And then day three, we're going to do the same thing. Day four, five, six. Six days in a row. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Day seven, we're really going to mess with their heads. We're going to do seven laps. Everybody quiet. And then at the end of the seventh lap, you ready for this? We're all going to blow horns and yell really loud. That's the plan. (laughs) This is not a plan that instills confidence in an army. And yet... The amazing part of the story is that not only does Joshua take the plan from God and institute it exactly as it is laid out for him, it works. They yell, the horns blare, and those mud brick walls come crumbling down, and the army overruns the city and wipes them out. Not only destroying Jericho, but completely wiping out the hopes of almost every army in the area because of what has just happened. Because they all knew how crazy this plan sounded too. Their God must be powerful. I think there's a real beauty in thinking. Put yourselves in the sandals of an average soldier spending a week walking in circles around that city, right? Every step, quietly contemplating the impossibility of the task before you. Seventy foot of wall stands on your left-hand side. And every step, more wall, more wall, more wall for a week straight. Until on the final day, you do seven laps thinking about nothing other than the fact that unless God intervenes on your behalf, you are hosed. And God shows up. Now, I don't know if Joshua was filled with doubt in this situation at all, but the Bible doesn't say that he was. Uh, Instead, it gives us a picture of a man who trusted God on a level of devotion and obedience that it seemed to be second nature to him. He was spiritually clutch. So if we look at the story of Joshua, what can we take from him that will help us to be spiritually clutch? What was he doing? I think there's two main things that we can look at. The first is that Joshua studied the character of God. If you jump back to verse 8 in his commissioning, this is what it says. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." See, the law is the pouring out of the character of God upon his people. In the scriptures, God reveals what he values and who he is. And his activating instructions for Joshua are to read the law, think about the law, talk about the law. Because he knows that by doing so, it will so transform Joshua that he will become a man that knows God's will so deeply it oozes out of him whenever moments of crisis arise. One of the classic mistakes I think we make when we look at men like Michael Jordan or Joshua is that we tell ourselves that somehow they're unusual, that they're exceptional, that they are not the average person. And therefore, we give ourselves a pass to not be exceptional. The problem is is that we often come into their story only at the peak. I become aware of Michael Jordan as he's sinking a jump shot to win an NBA playoff game, right? We become aware of Joshua as he's leading the, peop- the entire nation. What we don't see, and we don't spend much time talking about because it's not very exciting, is the fact that they had an entire lifetime of training before that moment so that they would respond in the way that they did. Uh, they trained hard. They trained deep. They cared much. For Jordan, that looks like you know drop steps and jump shots and free throws. And for Joshua, he studied 
the law so that he could understand the character of the Father. Jesus does a really great favor for us uh, when he sums up the law for us in just two thoughts. Uh, It's recorded in most of the gospel narratives, but in Matthew chapter 22, we can see it. And this is what he says. He says, someone asked him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The character of God, when summed up by God himself, is love. It was out of the overflow of love that God created man. It was out of the overflow of love that he restrained his wrath when mankind rejected him, chose sin and independence instead of relationship with him. It was out of love that he chose a people in Israel. It was out of love that he came to die. And it was out of love that he chose to rescue, to redeem, to adopt. All love. Because of his great love, we can trust him. My son, uh, Beck, he's two, Um, he has a changing table in his room where we change his diaper. And for the last probably three weeks, I've been working on something with him. After I've changed his diaper, I stand him up on the uh, changing table, it's about three feet off the ground, and I take a step back and I say, come on, buddy, jump, jump. Now, Beck is a timid boy, uh, and so it's taking some time. But every time I do it, I keep telling him the same thing, right? I'm there. I will catch you. You can trust me. I love you. I got your back. You don't need to be scared. Daddy's here. I tell them that over and over again. And someday, what I've told him about myself is going to become so real that he's going to launch himself into the abyss, trusting that I will catch him. My love that has conceptually been given to him will suddenly become so real that he will endanger his own life, trusting in it and in me. We are free to make amazing leaps of faith, just like Joshua made, because we know the love and character of our Father, and he will catch us because he loves us. If my love for Beck is great, God's love is infinitely greater, and we can trust it and move in it. Secondly, I think that Joshua understood the mission of God. For him, it was fairly simple. God himself came and said, here's the mission. Cross the river. Not too complicated, right? I would argue that if we're going to move in obedience to the mission of God, we need to know what his mission is too. And I think that he has given us just as clear of a direction. And here's what it is. Jesus uh, summed up the law very conveniently for us, and I think he also gives us the mission of the church. Just before he is ready to leave this earth and ascend into heaven, he gathers his disciples to give them instructions, and here's what he says in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, God did not call us out of the slavery and our sin to abandon us in the wilderness unclear about where to move. We do not have to stand by unclear about what God has intended for us. We have a purpose. We have a vision. We have a direction. We are on a disciple-making mission. 
right? The church exists to make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that has been commanded. If you're someone who loves Jesus, who's trusted him with your life and your future, then you're a disciple, and your mission is to be working towards obedience. Now, Tim told me I didn't have time to go into all that Jesus commanded this morning, um, so I'm going to try to sum it up. We're going to back up to something he said earlier in chapter 22 of Matthew. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This command and this command alone would be enough to challenge us for the rest of our lives. We could devote a Michael Jordan level of training to just that, and you'd be busy until the day you were dead. One of the things that always stands out to me in reading the story about Joshua is how many times God tells him to be strong and courageous. Uh, in the first chapter alone, he says it four times, be strong and courageous. And you can count a fifth time if you count the time he says, uh, don't be afraid or dismayed, which is really just the flip side, right? Why would God be so concerned with fear and the importance of courage and strength? I think it is because it speaks directly to what it costs us to obey. If we follow the command to love our neighbors like ourselves to its logical conclusion, we are going to find ourselves very quickly in a place that requires great courage. To serve others selflessly, to love people when they are unlovable, to offer forgiveness when you have been wronged, to allow others to have credit that you should deserve. All of those things require immense courage. Action requires courage. Godliness is not born in your head as you collect little bits of information about God. That is not where it happens. It happens when we discover what the character of God and trustworthiness of the Father looks like and we move in action in it. God did not say to Joshua, read the law and then sit back and I'll take care of everything. He said, read the law, understand who I am, and then move. That movement requires trust and courage. Being spiritually clutch means training your heart with small, repeated acts of courage. The workout of the soul begins when we start to take tiny acts of self-sacrifice, and these things are made possible in your life because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're going to fail. Yes, you're going to get frustrated. Yes, you will tire for short periods of time. But with intentional, repeated obedience, the very nature of who you are will begin to change. The Holy Spirit begins to transform your heart, and the level at which you are comfortable loving the world around you will begin to expand bit by bit until you find yourself in a place where you trust God and are filled with courage. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to uh, one of his closest disciples, Timothy. Uh, you can find it in the book of 1 Timothy, and he says this, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Church, we are called to follow in Joshua's footsteps of courage. I think we can easily be coaxed into this idea that somehow holiness will happen on our behalf and we can just sit back and relax. That's going to lead us into a life of waiting for something to happen to us, not of a life that seeks God as disciples. The words that Paul wrote to Timothy are not mistakes, right? Toil, train, strive. 
There is effort that was required, and that effort requires courage. If, you're, if spiritually clutch sounds like something you'd like to be, uh, then this week I'm going to ask you to join me, right, in an exercise. We're going to do some training. Now, don't worry, the spiritually cl- clutch training program doesn't require a lot, at least in the first week. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do two things with me if you're interested. Number one, this week pray that God would remind you constantly of his character and his goodness. And that his character would overwhelm you when opportunities to love come up in your week. Ask him to do that for you. Secondly, rather than waiting by for some mystical opportunity to love, like, hey, I'm going to sit on the couch, and if my neighbor happens to barge into my house and walk by, and he happens to be thirsty, I might give him a Diet Coke and show him love. No. We need to be a proactive people. Seek the blessing of your neighbor. Now, whether that neighbor is your spouse or your parent or your coworker or your boss or maybe your actual neighbor, be on the lookout for a way to proactively love this week. God is faithful, and if we follow him with courage, he will use our efforts to bless the world and to change us. Remember, church, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of a man like Joshua, a man who has demonstrated for us what it looks like to be strong and courageous and to follow you in a faithful manner. God, we are so grateful for his story. I pray that it would transform us and that we would use uh, the courage that you have promised us in order to love the world around us. God, we thank you for Jesus that makes this all possible in our lives. We love him. We pray this in his name. Amen.